during the season of Lent, we're going very slowly, deliberately through the last week of Jesus's life. This wasn't our idea to do. Luke had this idea. A lot of the concluding chapters of Luke are on these last days of Jesus, and he gives a lot of time and attention to the words spoken by Jesus, the dialogues that he had in and around the temple. Um, And so today we are continuing in that study, working our way through the last week of Jesus's life before we celebrate his glorious resurrection on Easter. So today we're going to be reading from Luke 21. This is a conversation he has uh, with his disciples, and there's some passersby that hear him and comment on what he's saying, Um, and it's alarming. I'll just leave it at that. Hear now the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He also saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. He said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all offered their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. Now, while some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you are gazing at, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. So they asked him, teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? He said, watch out that you're not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. And when you hear of wars and rebellions, do not be afraid, for these things must happen first, but the end will not come at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you, handing you over to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will be a time for you to serve as witnesses. Therefore, be resolved not to rehearse ahead of time how to make your defense, for I will give you the words, along with the wisdom, that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, And they will have some of you put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city must depart. Those who are out in the country must not enter it. Because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. For there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives along among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth 
Nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. People will be fainting from fear and the expectation of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to happen, stand up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the other trees. When they sprout leaves, you see for yourselves and know that summer is now near. So also you, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. But be on your guard. So your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day closed down upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will overtake all who live on the face of the whole earth. But stay alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that must happen and to stand before the Son of Man. So every day Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, but at night he went and stayed on the Mount of Olives. And all the people came to him early in the morning to listen to him in the temple courts. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we need your help to interpret what you're saying. So in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Father, help us to walk the narrow path between alarm and complacency. Make us ready. Amen. So it's a provocative text, right? Like the, the drama of the apocalyptic genre is one that is just so incredibly compelling and stirring that it's been reproduced in so many different mediums. You know, we're all familiar with apocalyptic movies or apocalyptic shows, literature, spoken lore, whatever. However we communicate story, we communicate apocalyptic themes because it is so dramatic, it's so compelling, it's so stirring, it's so provocative. And yeah, that's all true and it's, it's alarming as well, but there's something about it that feels so familiar, right? Like, and maybe that's because we've heard the stories told in so many different contexts. I don't think that's true. I think maybe there's a sense that we're able to decipher and interpret the trajectory of human history. It's, it's alarming, but it's familiar. And I think because it catches so many people and it stirs so many people, we, we respond both appropriately and inappropriately. Um, I won't speak to the appropriateness of this, but I learned this week that survivalism, you know, readying yourself for the impending apocalypse, whatever that might look like, is an $11 billion a year industry. That is crazy to me. And, you know, that encompasses all things. I don't know how they apply these directly to survivalism. You can buy them for other things, but that doesn't matter. You know, backup generators and stockpiling you know, huge amounts of freeze-dried food, uh, ammunition, um, survival training and classes, water. You know, all of these things contribute to $11 billion a year spent in our country to survive the impending apocalypse, whatever that looks like. 
And also there are uh, prepper and survivalist groups. That's what they call themselves. We are preppers or we are survivalists. I don't know the, the difference between those two. But there's groups and uh, clubs all across America that you can join. And you can, you can get with a group of people and you can, you can create a, an action plan for what's coming. You can share resources. Uh, they, they participate in, in trainings to, you know, kind of hone their, their backcountry skills, all readying themselves for what feels kind of familiar, right? The impending collapse of all things as we know it. And when you, you know, read texts like, Luke 21, you might just feel a little inclined to join one of these groups, right? Because our, our text uh, is just engorged with this calamitous, apocalyptic language, right? You know, it talks about wars, rebellions, famine, natural disaster, nursing mothers in distress, torture, fainting from, from fear, betrayal inside the family, and execution, and again, it feels familiar, it feels so close, it feels so imminent. And you might think, well, I, I'm going to be one of those people contributing to the $11 billion spent on survivalist equipment. And, you know, I can understand why you would think that way, you, why you'd want to beef up your stores and get ready. But might I contend that this text is actually asking us to do the exact opposite. Let's just jump right into it. Um, in, in theological circles, this, this field of study, kind of this discipline, is known as eschatology. Eschaton logos, last things, words about. So, you know, it's the study of last thing, eschatology. And while, while our text, Luke 21, is uniquely provoking and stirring and descriptive. It's actually not the first eschatological mention in, in the book of Luke. It's the third. The first two, maybe you missed, because they're just, they're kind of nice. They're kind of vanilla. There's not a lot to them. They're actually rather short. It's only a few verses. Uh, Georgia, you can put them up. Uh, the first eschatological mention that we have in the book places an emphasis on watchfulness because the Son of Man will return unexpectedly, and when he does, he'll return as a servant. All right, that's not that alarming. That's actually, that's really encouraging, right? Okay, well, the second mention speaks to the suddenness of God's manifestation and how the righteous will drop everything to just witness his majesty, to just enjoy his glory. That was Luke's second eschatological mention. Again, the study speech about last Things. And then kind of in similar vein um, to those first two, our, our entire discourse here references how his return will be sudden, visible, unexpected, ultimately good news for the righteous. But then unlike the first two, it kind of gives us a bonus insight by pointing to something specific and says this will happen first. And the thing that will happen first is quite stirring and dramatic. And if you think it's provocative for us, imagine being the first hearers of Jesus saying this. You know, he's saying, the temple will be destroyed. 
Jerusalem will fall. Well, they just so happen to be at the temple in Jerusalem. So yeah, some follow-ups on their end was certainly warranted. And they very much were like, hey, yeah, real, real quick, guy. Um, when? When is this going to happen? And what will be the signs that it's going to happen so I know to get away? But there's also, there's also some subtext here because this is such an outrageous and enormous claim that Jesus is making that the subtext is like, there's no way. Like, there's, there's absolutely no way. It can't be. It's, this is too big to fail. You know, Jerusalem is the city of, of God's people, and the temple represents the epicenter of his worship. There's just no way that this could ever happen. And, you know, in, in verse 5, kind of to further attest to their feelings about the temple, um, there are some passersby who uh, Jesus mentions are, are talking about the grandeur of this structure, and rightfully so. You know, they're, they're marveling at the temple as they're going by. It's the, it's the week of Passover, so a lot of uh, visitors are in Jerusalem. Many have made a pilgrimage to the city, so this might have been people who have never been to Jerusalem before, and they're just walking by the temple, and they're just done. They're just amazed at this thing, and, and rightfully so. I mean, the, the temple at this point in history was incredible. It was one of the most impressive fixtures on the face of the earth. Um, King Herod was not particularly liked by his people. In fact, he was downright hated. And so in a move to curry favor with the Israelites, he started this massive, nearly century-long renovation project of the temple. And it was just incredible. Uh, Josephus, who is a first-century Jewish historian, gives us really uh, interesting insight into what it looked like. He said it was thousands of feet long in either direction. It was on a plot of land that was 30 acres. Um, It was adorned with jewels and precious stones and gold. The stones that were stacked on each other were just massive. They were multiple tons. And the the outer walls of the temple had these plates of gold. So when the sun would rise, you couldn't even look at the temple because it would reflect the sun. You know, all of this to just depict its majesty and its wonder. Yeah, this was an impressive, a historically impressive structure. And Jesus points at that and says, not one stone will be left on another. Not one of these massive white marble multi-ton stones will be left on another. And Jerusalem, the city that houses this temple, will fall with it. No way. Just, it cannot be. It's too big to fail. Well then, in, you know, one of the better proofs of Jesus's legitimacy. It's actually a pretty compelling apologetic. This is exactly what happens, the way he described it would happen. Forty years after the life of Jesus, this happened. And, you know, not for nothing, probably more, um, more proof for us. It was ten years after Luke concluded writing his gospel account that this happened in 70 A.D., And again, because of Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, the Jewish war and the sack of Jerusalem is one of the better documented events from from the ancient world. And Josephus wrote a lot about what was happening. Uh, He was at 
the city. He was one who was there for a while and then fled. And he wrote in, in horrifying and, and gruesome detail about what happened to the city by the Roman invaders in AD 70. And then Luke, um, after the fall of Jerusalem, when he's writing Acts, details what happened to the apostles. And again, as, as gruesome and kind of bleak as it is, it's another interesting apologetic and proof of Jesus's legitimacy because all of these things that he described happened the way he described them. Georgia, you can put it up. This is a kind of side-by-side. I hope you can see it all. Um, On the left, things Jesus said would happen, and on the right, when it happened. Um, The first, uh, you know, maybe the one that caught my eye the most, because I have two small kids, was he said, you know, woe woe to nursing mothers in that time. It's going to be, it's just going to be hard. And Josephus does in his writings, I'm not going to get too into it because it's just heartbreaking, talks about how every day there were babies all throughout the city who were dying of starvation because of the Roman siege tactics, starving out the city. Just brutal time to be a parent. And then he says, many will fall by the sword. Jesus said that. Well, Josephus recorded that nearly 1.1 million Jews were killed in the siege of Jerusalem. He also says many will be taken captive. Well, Josephus recorded that over 100,000 Jews following the siege of Jerusalem were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire as slaves. He also said many will come and say, I am he, like I'm preaching your redemption. That happened too, weirdly enough. That was a Roman tactic to kind of gather all of the people from the surrounding countryside in one central location for their siege to begin. So they sent out insurgents and false messiahs saying like, hey, like danger's coming, get to the, sit- get to the city center. That's where you'll be safest. Really, they were just rounding them all up before the siege started. And then Luke records what happens to the apostles after this and what I have these Acts texts is just a small fraction of all of the accounts of this happening. This is just a smattering. You know, Jesus says, You will be arrested, happened. You'll be persecuted, happened. You'll face conflict in synagogues, happened. You'll be imprisoned, yep. Brought before kings and governors, uh huh. Given words to speak by the Holy Spirit. Well, finally, a good one, and that happened too. And many of you will be executed. It all happened. It all happened the way Jesus said it would happen. It all happened in his stirring language. And so when you look at that like most troubling slide I've maybe ever put together, um, it makes a lot more sense. It gives color to the scene that we talked about a few weeks ago when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and he is uncontrollably weeping. The text says when he saw the city, he broke out weeping. And, you know, we, we like to envision the, the triumphal entry as just that, triumphal, right? You know, he's, he's a little stately. He's on a donkey. That's weird. But he's a, he's a stately guy, and they're happy he's there. They're welcoming their Messiah. Like, do we really, do we envision the triumphal entry as one, this slouched over guy on a donkey just ugly crying and weeping uncontrollably as he goes through the city. I mean, I want to remind you 
of that text because it's a moment of raw but honest humanity on the part of Jesus. This is in 1941 through 54. We read it a few weeks ago, but keep in mind that really gross list that I made when you hear these words. Now when Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had only known on this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and close in on you from every side. They will demolish you, you and your children within your walls. And they will not leave within you one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Georgia, just leave that last one up for a while. And funny enough, painfully enough, even this, this discourse, what's happening in that scene, his triumphal entry, is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's another apologetic because 500 years before this scene, uh, the prophet Zechariah is talking to the nation of Israel. Um, and he has this, this really important discourse urging them to remain faithful to the covenant with God after what was generations of chronic and compulsive wandering from him and blatant idolatry. And in his discourse with the nation, he gives them this, this image, this prophetic picture of their Messiah coming into Jerusalem in humility, riding on a donkey. And when they see him, they reject him. And so then he, he presents a, a, another image, and it's this, this Messiah will enter Jerusalem at last as the good shepherd. But there are false shepherds among you, you the flock of Israel, and they will compel you to reject the good shepherd. And this, this rejection motif became a really... Um, major theme in the prophetic literature. And I think it all points to these words of Jesus. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. You rejected the humble Messiah who rode into your gates on a donkey. Like, it's, it's, it's a visual proof that that happened. And he was, he was weeping because he knew of their rejection. You rejected the one who came as a good shepherd. Something he described himself in those terms many, many times. Because the false shepherds just kept compelling your rejection. You did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Well, fortunately, it's not all so bleak, um, Zechariah, alongside many other prophets, after kind of their alarming oracles, uh, detail a, a new Jerusalem, one that's, one that's coming to take the place of the old Jerusalem, a place not uh, of rejection, but acceptance of the messianic king and his reign. And you enter into this new Jerusalem through repentance. And the, this new Jerusalem is described as a place where, where, where justice at long last overpowers evil. Um, and in uh, Zechariah in particular, 
Um, it's depicted as this new recreated Garden of Eden. And out of the main gate flows this river of living water. And as it pours out of the gate, everything it touches is recreated. You know, creation is given new life and flourishing. And all those who are, are bent over and hungry and poor flock to this river of living water and through repentance they're allowed to drink of it and they too are lifted up and recreated. It's this beautiful image of of new life, recreation, all entered through acceptance of the messianic king and confession. Well, I alluded to it, but the prophets speaking of a new Jerusalem implies an old Jerusalem, right? And for the new Jerusalem to come, the old Jerusalem must fade. And when you, when you consider the way Jesus talked about the old Jerusalem, it, it makes a lot of sense that it needed to be remade, right? You know, the, the temple was ornate. It was adorned with all the trappings of majesty, like I described. Gold plates on the wall to reflect the sun, that's gnarly. That's wild. And yet, how did Jesus describe it the first time he entered it? Den of thieves. You have turned this place into a den of thieves. Uh, the theologian and, and scholar Michael Wilcock, and I'll have this quote, said, Luke began the section describing how Jesus came to the, the temple to cleanse it. But it soon became clear that the Jewish leaders were not prepared to let it be cleansed. And of course they weren't, because they were described in the exact same way, right? Like outwardly impressive, but inwardly rotten themselves. You know, we, we read it uh, in our text last week when Jesus is talking to his followers. And he says, beware the experts in the law. Be mindful of them. They like walking around in long robes and they love elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' property. The description of the leaders was just like that of the temple, adorned with all the trappings of majesty, right? But they themselves were dens of robbers, devouring widows' property, whitewashed tombs, rotten at the core. They were the very people that Zechariah was talking about 500 years earlier when he said, there, there are false shepherds among you who will compel you into rejection of the true messianic good shepherd. And it, it, it's interesting to me, you know, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, Nehemiah, so many prophets, speak in, in apocalyptic language, yes, but it's always kind of referred to as, as cleansing. And I think that's where, you know, kind of our, the storytelling in our zeitgeist kind of differs from scripture. Because a lot of the apocalyptic stories that we hear, or we see, or we tell ourselves are dystopian, but in a biblical sense, they are recreative, Right? To borrow a line from Tolkien, it's sad things are coming untrue. Or to, to borrow another line from Beekner, the worst thing is not the last thing. But also, and I think this is interesting, 
in, in our apocalyptic literature, especially our biblical apocalyptic literature, it, it kind of describes the worst thing coming right before the last thing. You know, the, the, it's darkest right before the dawn motif. That's, that's very much alive and well in our prophetic oracles. And so I think that is why Jesus gave us the specific charge to be on your guard. Like, be ready. Interpret the trajectory of history. Know that the worst thing is not the last thing, but before I make all sad things untrue, be ready. Be on your guard. And, you know, maybe it took me too long to get to this question, but how do we do that, right? How do we appropriately be ready, be on our guard? What is Jesus asking us to do? Because the text also makes clear there are pitfalls on either side to avoid. Like, don't be, don't be drunkenly incredulous. Like, just paying no mind to the trajectory and brokenness of things. Like, oh, everything's fine. I don't need to worry about it. Yeah, the temple would never be destroyed. Come on. Like, all right, that's one pitfall. And the other, as he describes, is like, don't be weighed down with worry. Don't faint from fear. Don't stockpile, you know, ammunition and generators and freeze-dried food. Those are both of the pitfalls to avoid. And there's a very narrow path in between those things. And so we have to ask, what is the appropriate response then of the church? How do we, as Jesus asked us to be, be ready, be on our guard, especially if the path between those two ditches is so narrow? It's a good question. One that I hope I'm getting right. And I would contend that the key unlocking all of this strangely enough is the widow that we read about in the beginning of the chapter which is just so fitting right that that would be the key that unlocks this for us because I almost didn't even read that section I remember I was talking to uh, Mike and I was like I think I'm just going to pick up in verse 5 like that's where the apocalyptic imagery really gets going we can probably skip over for time the, the widow's story and the more I spent time with it I uh, I think I think this is the appropriate model and example of how we are to get ready, be on our guard. So let's, let's talk about the little four-verse scene, very short, that we get uh, with the widow. So she comes to the temple, right, with her, her very meager gift. Maybe you've heard this story before. Um, and in the temple, there were 13 giving boxes, kind of uh, distributed throughout the courts. Um, And all of these boxes were made of brass, which is an interesting choice, because when you put coin into a brass box, what happens? You hear it, right? You hear it dropping in. And so if you brought a large gift or a, you know, a lot of gift, I suppose the same thing as a large gift. As you poured it into the box or dropped your coins into the box, it would hit the brass and the sound would ring out through the temple. And, you know, if you brought a lot and it just kept ringing, you know, you might get some people turning their heads towards you as you give. And tradition even says that there was a temple worker who would, and, you know, this probably started with a good motive, but a temple worker who would announce the gift, you know, so-and-so has given so much to the Lord. And, you know, it quickly became manipulated into this self-glorifying thing. Well, we might think that 
sounds weird, but we actually do that too. I maybe not in the church. I hope not in this church anyway. But you know, we have giving levels, right? We we ascribe different levels of of honor or gratitude to our biggest givers, especially like in the nonprofit world. Like if you give at this level, you'll be a a champion giver, and your name will go on the plaque in size 20 font. If you give at a lower level, you'll be a, you know, a super-duper giver, and um, your name will still go on the plaque, but it'll be at, like, size 12 font, and, like, heaven forbid, you know, your name is, like, down in the fine print. We do this all the time, and this kind of also was happening in the temple. The big gifts were being announced. Really, all the gifts were being announced And this widow brought two leptons. Leptons was a Jewish currency. It was a very small coin. Together, it equaled one-sixty-fourth the amount of a day's wages. Like, it was was nothing. And they were tiny, they were copper, and she had two. And so she dropped them into the brass box. You would hear a tink, tink. And that was it. And then her gift was announced. Two leptons to the Lord. Uh, Which would be like me saying into a microphone, Amy, thank you for your 11 cent offering. We can probably buy a building now. So, you know, the unspoken part of this scene, the one we often don't think about, is that she had to endure shame just to give. She endured embarrassment to deny herself and offer what little she had. And what's amazing and kind of inspiring to me, and I hope equally inspiring to you, is that the shame was no barrier to her worshiping, right? It would have been a lot easier to just not put yourself into the crosshairs like that. The embarrassment would not stand in the way of her demonstrating full, entire, comprehensive reliance on God. And this is not just a cordial reliance, like, yeah, I'm relying on you, like, here's here's a portion of what I have. The text is clear. It was total self-denial. It was all-encompassing, desperate reliance, the kind of reliance that says, I don't really know where my next meal will come from if it doesn't come from you. And we like this story. It's a good story. But I think because we venerate her attitude so much, we also kind of envision like a Hollywood ending, like attached to this story. Like after she, you know, the tink tink of her two leptons, like the slot machine, like bells and whistles and lights went off and coins started falling down and she was given a big check. Like, well done, congratulations. You were faithful and little and now you're given much. But of course, that doesn't happen. She came to the temple poor, and she left poorer. But the text says one thing did happen for her and to her, and I think this is just lovely. The text says these words, Jesus looked up and saw her. That was, that's what she got. That was her reward for enduring the shame walking past the embarrassment, making herself destitute, Jesus looked up and saw her. She was making herself more 
destitute, but was seen by Jesus, and in doing so, I would argue, was readying herself to receive and enter the new Jerusalem. Her preparation for the eschaton, her preparation for the last things was self-denial, right? And that is the way of following Jesus. At its heart is self-denial. It is acknowledging the depravity of your own heart and denying those things, confessing those things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. She was readying herself through self-denial, and I would argue that in all of Jerusalem, she was the picture of getting ready for the coming kingdom. Because remember how the new Jerusalem is described in Zechariah with the, the river of living water coming out of the city and all who are destitute come to it and are saved. They enter into its gates through confession. The penitent, those who accept the kingship of the Messiah are welcomed, recreated, given blessing, lifted up restored. And Jesus has a, a specific instruction in this text for what to do when history is kind of reaching its zenith, right? And what, what's that specific instruction? It's be ready, be on your guard, yes, but then there's another one, and it's stand up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, this is a, this is a really compelling an interesting thing for him to tell people, stand up, raise your heads. The word that he uses, the, the, the Greek word says to stand up, is the same word that Luke used in Luke 13 to describe the woman who was bent over and had been chronically bent over for her life. And, you know, text says she was, she was bound by Satan and she could not stand up straight until Jesus had released her from those bonds, until Jesus had recreated her very body. She was incapable of standing up. So the charge, be ready, be on your guard, stand up, lift your head for your redemption is near, is a way of saying, I am loosing you from the bonds of evil that have held. I'm asking you to stand up, and I'm the one who's going to give you the power to stand up. A glorious and beautiful vision of the end, right? Fully in God's control. We are loosed from the grip of evil and empowered to do the things that Jesus is commanding. The church, stand up, raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. Gosh, those words are so sweet. And the, the, the text makes no mistake. Jesus wants us to be aware. You know, there's there's a there's a whole reason he put in the thing about the fig tree. Like, you know, you're able to tell when summer's near because you can look at a fig tree or any tree for that matter and see new buds and you realize, like, something's happening. And in that sense, summer's around the corner. But he's saying, you too will be able to interpret. Like, something's happening. Something's around the corner. He clearly wants us to be prepared. Yeah, but we prepare the way the widow prepared. That's the only appropriate preparation. That is the narrow path between the two pitfalls. Deny yourself. That's how you get prepared. Practice deeper reliance on the very provision from God's hand. That is how you prepare. Confess. That's the only way you enter the new Jerusalem and drink from this river of living water. 
And I think it's so fitting that this sermon, you know, intentionally, comes during the season of Lent, right? Because this is the season of our most deliberate and intentional practice of self-denial. You know, we fast. That sucks, right? But we do it. It's a practice of self-denial. We give up the things that bring comfort, not because they're bad, but because we would rather learn how to draw our comfort from God. We confess, we practice our frailty, and we utter to each other, dust we are, and to dust we shall return. And isolated on its own, that makes no sense. That's so bleak, it doesn't feel like we're a people of hope. But then when you put it within the context of Jesus told us to be ready, and the only way to be ready is to practice self-denial. Lent makes a lot more sense, right? The reason you're not watching TV at night anymore or on Instagram, as arbitrary as that might feel, makes a lot more sense. It is the practice of self-denial, all of this making us ready. And this is also how we come to the table, right? You know, At this table, you can't make provision for yourself. Um, You don't come with your own meal and you find condiments on the table. The meal is here. You come empty-handed. And you don't take the bread. You hold out your hands and you receive it. This is also a practice of denial and total reliance on the giver, right? And I suppose if there was a survivalist group worth joining, we would call it the church, right? where we share resources and we practice and we ready ourselves for what we sense might just be coming. Let's pray. Jesus, guard us from fear and anxiety. Guard us from being incredulous and passive and thoughtless. Show us how to walk the narrow path in between those two and rely on you to enter the new Jerusalem through confession, to empty ourselves and take up our cross. Oh Lord, we do not know how to do that, but we trust that you'll give us the power to do it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.